just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to Women of Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Margaret Hodge. Hodge has been the Labour MP for Barking since 1994. A self-proclaimed old toughy, Hodge served as a minister in the Blair and Brown government. However, it was her role as chair of the Public Accounts Committee which saw her rise to a certain level of notoriety for her ability to castigate tax dodgers and civil servants alike. The then head of the civil service, Gus O'Donnell, accused Hodge of presiding over a theatrical exercise in public humiliation. More recently, Hodges found herself in the news over her party's anti-Semitism problem. Last year, she accused Jeremy Corbyn of being an anti-Semite after the party's National Executive Committee refused to ditch a new code of conduct on anti-Semitism which should not incorporate all the examples listed in the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. At the most recent Labour conference, Hodge told a Jewish Labour movement rally, I'm not going to give up until Jeremy Corbyn ceases to be the leader of the Labour Party. So with that... Thank you very much for joining us today, Margaret. And did I get anything wrong? No, you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) My time was well spent today. Um, Now, on this podcast, we like to begin by rewinding the hands of time uh, initially to what you did before you became a politician, so your early life. And you were born in Egypt in 1944, not, well, to reveal your age, to Jewish refugee parents. Do you remember much growing up in Egypt? Because you came to the UK when you were fairly young. When I was four... So I sort of remember a really good quality of life. You know, we lived in Alexandria on the sea. We went to the beach every day. You know, I I remember the luscious fruits that we ate, the mangoes and the avocados, you know, the the vegetable. I think we had a pretty good sort of neocolonial sort of existence there. And then when your parents moved to the family to the UK, it's been reported that it was partly because they were concerned about anti-Semitism increasing in the Middle East. Um, they left for the UK. Did you grow up with a sense of anti-Semitism and the, perhaps the prejudices that they encountered because of that? Or did they keep it, you sheltered from it? My parents lost a lot of, we lost a lot of family during the Holocaust. And my father clearly really you know, sort of burnt by that experience when in 1948 somebody threw a stone at his window in his workplace in Alexandria. I think he decided to get out before it was too late. But they never really talked about it. And the interesting thing was that I always felt an outsider. There were sort of various experiences that I look back on and think I didn't feel a part of Britain. But my parents were really keen that we should assimilate. I mean, they were assimilated in Germany, my dad in Germany, my mother in Austria before Nazism spread. In Egypt, they were less so, but they were really anxious that this third country in which they were trying to settle and bring up their family, we should feel assimilated. So we didn't really participate in Jewish community, in the Jewish community in the traditional way. We didn't go to synagogue, we didn't celebrate the high days, all that sort of stuff didn't happen. But all our family friends were... Jewish refugees. My dentist was a Jewish refugee from the town my dad came from. So there was that influence there. And I certainly always felt the outsider. And growing up, you're clearly a politician now, but I was wondering, was politics something that was discussed much around the dinner table? Was it a part of your early life? 
I'm one of five children and we're all pretty political and we get gradually more left-wing as we go down the five and I'm in the middle. Uh, my younger sisters, two younger sisters, are far to the left of what I am. So I think I was politicised actually through being sent to boarding school at the age of 13 where my mother had died. I was an impossible teenager. The only My dad couldn't cope. My sister was at the University of Oxford, so he sent me to this uh, a boarding house of a, of a direct grant school in Oxford. And half the girls came out through the 11 plus into the school. They came from the Cowley Motorworks, you know, the bright kids from the Cowley. And then half were the children of academics at Oxford. So that hit the cut the class system hit me and as an outsider I didn't feel part of either and that sort of politicized me I then hated that came back to day school tried to run the one and only society in the sixth form of the school I was at and got castigated for putting on vaguely political films and things like that lost my prefectship because I did a sign of CND on the play, on the snow on the playground outside the school. So I was sort of political, but my dad was very conservative. I mean, I, my early memory at the age of 18 was him absolutely screaming at me because he was in the steel industry. Labour won the election. We were going to nationalise steel, and he was absolutely furious about the impact that might have on his business. Nearly threw me out of the house, although I was in bed with a bad back at the time. So politics around the dinner table, sort of, but not... I didn't grow up in a Labour family. Did your father think you were going through a left-wing phase, quite typical of youngsters? Do you know, I can't remember that sort of conversation. What I do remember, because it was part of his absolute determination to be assimilated, although we were refugees, uh, having come here, I, I was awarded an MB at quite an early age in 1976 when he was still alive for the work I'd done around housing as a councillor in Islington. And I remember his... And that was a left wing, you know, we were a sort of left wing council. We'd done a lot of municipalisation of housing. We'd done a big rehabilitation programme, converting old Georgian houses which that didn't have inside loos and, you know, and no electricity. We converted them into decent homes at prices people could afford in Islington. So I think I got the MBE for that. And he was so proud that his wayward daughter that he'd had to throw out into a boarding school at the age of 13 had become a member of the establishment. So I don't know whether, you know, I think his pride in my achievement was more important than his objection to my views. And you went on to study government at university. Did you always want to be a politician? No, absolutely not. And I have to say... Uh, why don't well that was a sort of rebellion I would think I was quite rebellious in those days you did you went off and actually did at university what you'd done your A levels and I was doing English um, history I can't remember the French I think it was the third A level and I just didn't want to do any of them at university I wanted to do economics with uh, specialising in in politics really because uh, I was interested in it and it was a rebellious act you know I remember the school saying this wasn't really deeply appropriate would it would it lead me into a proper career and um, I have to say I didn't do much studying and I still have I got a terrible degree I'm amazed I got a degree I wrote one essay I wrote one essay in three years I wouldn't get away with that today and I still have nightmares about my failure to work but I had a fantastic time were you very involved with the student politics scene while you were well I was always I was never I was never in an ultra I was never in an ultra left grouping so I was involved in movements, so Vietnam, 
CND. I did a drama. I acted The Mother in a Taste of Honey, uh, which I'd gone to see Joan Littlewood's production of it down at, at Theatre Royal Stratford East, where I'm now the chair. So that's a lovely sort of end uh, closing of a circle. So I was an issue-based person rather than a sort of uh, involved in that, you know, in the mid-60s, most people were in one or other revolutionary group and I never got involved in that. I mean, I did spend my, honestly, I went to the cinema a lot. I went to, uh, I stayed up until five o'clock in the morning reading poetry and it sounds a bit bonkers, but that's <laughs> drinking, reading poetry and then I'd go to sleep till midday and of course miss all the lectures. I wasn't a very, very focused student and I do regret it. I do regret it. Now, you touched on your time on council in Islington. Um, you were elected to council in 1973, quite soon went on to be the chairman of the Housing Committee. And I was just wondering, for listeners, I mean, just looking at the politics of Labour at that time, I was wondering if you could tell us a, a bit about that and also where you sat on it, because there is this sense that around the era, Labour was very much leaving or lurching to the left. Yeah, I mean, it's very easy to sort of put all that, that period into into yeah. one place. So in the 1970s, when I first arrived in Islington, when we bought our house where the surveyors, it was, it was a, George, a little Georgian house, and Islington in those days was the only place we could afford to buy a house. It's extraordinary. Couldn't afford Camden, we couldn't afford Kennington, we couldn't afford Dulwich, but we could just about afford Islington. And when I arrived there, I tried to join the Labour Party, and it was full up, literally, and it was run by a sort of Tammany Hall cabal of old white men. So... The 70s to me was a time, a guy called Michael O'Halloran was the MP for North Islington, John Grant, there were three constituencies. So it was a time when really the young radicals who had come in as part of the gentrification of Islington, I suppose, were taking over from the sort of white working class controlling and ruling group. So that was quite an interesting period. And I'm really proud of what I did as chair of housing because that was... You know, we mean we did a lot of municipalisation. There was a crash in the property market, and we bought these stunningly wonderful Georgian houses, which literally had no facilities whatsoever. And we converted them into decent homes, and that meant you had middle-class people like me who'd bought owner-occupation living next door to council tenants, and you couldn't tell which was a council house, which was an owner-occupied house, except by the by the post box, so we had a standardised council post box. That was a good period, and I like to think that that sort of integration of housing was the sort of social cohesion that I dream of as a socialist. Move fast forward into the 80s, when Labour lost the election in 1979. Remember, this was after 1976 and the IMF, and we'd had Tony Crossland saying the party's over. So there was a, a group, and, you know, in the run-up to 79, you had all the Callaghan period with the trouble with the unions. So there was a sort of coming together of the soft and hard left against the Labour government of the, of the 70s. In a funny way, a little bit like is what is happening now, a sort of disenchantment for what Labour had achieved in office, bringing all bits of the left together. So in the early 80s, there was a dominance of these of the hard left in politics and I was always on the soft left but we were sort of we we worked with each other and I knew it was difficult and I always remember I was elected as leader of the Labour group and then we 
old guard labour, the old Tammany Hall people had gone off to then the SDP when we actually gained control in 1982 and I became leader. The first thing that happened was that somebody suggested we put the statue of Lenin up outside the council chamber and my heart sank because I knew it was a completely daft, meaningless gesture which would get us massively attacked by the media. And indeed it did, and we put the red flag on top of the town hall, another ridiculous, stupid gesture, which just gave massive opportunity to people like you to have a go at us. So it was very difficult, and I think what the 80s was about was the separation of that soft left that had reacted against the Labour government of the 70s from the hard left who wanted to destroy capitalism and all the things that we're now seeing again in the Corbyn regime. And I led for Labour in London on that, and it was a tough battle. There was rate capping, there were all sorts of things. and But I liked, we did it, we, we achieved it. And I'll just say one thing about those days, we were radical, and some of the things that we did we were completely lambasted for. But some of them, have, some of those things have become accepted orthodoxy. So, for example, we started monitoring the allocation of council housing to make sure that it wasn't allocated on a... Uh, it didn't discriminate on the grounds of race. That was considered completely loony left at the time, and I think it's sort of mainstream now. We established the first ever workplace nursery, and that was... We were absolutely lambasted for that as being a waste of of public money. Now again, ensuring that women can remain in the workforce is seen as as mainstream. So some of the things that we did was bonkers. I mean I'll tell you the most bonkers thing. There was a there was a well, the thing that always makes me laugh is that there was a, a pro animal rights and that was part of the sort of ultra left agenda. Absolutely fine. So Islington Council bans fox hunting from the A one. You can imagine how effective that was. <laughs> And in 1994, you entered Parliament, you yeah. became an MP. Yeah. And quite soon after that, you endorsed the candidature of Tony Blair. Yeah. At that point, was that an acceptance by you that you thought the party needed to move to the centre? Were you aware of, I suppose, the, the how far Tony Blair would take the party? Yeah. At that time, we were very, we were close friends. I mean, that we were neighbours. We'd identified the house in our street for them to move to when they were looking for a bigger house. Uh, my husband had given Cherie her very first brief. I think he'd given Tony the very first brief. He was a solicitor. They were both barristers. So we were part of the sort of trendy, lefty gr- London grouping. We were uh, we were close. And I worked very closely with Tony before, before he was elected as leader because I think we were very sceptical about whether the one more heave approach of John Smith would be enough to get a sustained period of government where Labour would be the party of choice for the electorate. We felt it had to be a more radical transformation, Clause 4, for example, as being one of the key issues. And we used to sit in, you know, in a little group and talk about that. So I was completely signed up to Blairism. But people say, have you moved? I mean, in some ways, I sometimes think there are parts of Tony Blair's agenda that I don't agree with, that I've never agreed with. But I've, you know, for example, I think when you come to the reform of public services, Tony was a great believer in structural reform. You know, he threw the structure up and let it land again. I used to think that was wrong. So on schools, 
looking at structural reform rather than focusing on standards is what, what I felt we should be doing. And so looking at pedagogy and the quality of teachers and those sort of things. So we didn't always agree. I didn't buy into his foreign policy. I thought that was, I just thought, you know, we were trying to impose our form of democracy on very, very different sort of jurisdictions around the world. And it was this, this arrogance sense of that I didn't buy, I couldn't uh, buy into. But I was Blairite and I was personally very uh, loyal to him. And, and did your personal relationship stay strong through things like his foreign policy or did it have did it have a strain on it? Iraq was the big issue and I was a minister then. And I remember the discussions. I mean, I was a junior minister. I don't think he ever, because I do mouth off, I don't think they ever trusted me to stand by collective responsibility as a cabinet member. Thank goodness, really. I think I've had a more interesting life because of that. But I remember at the time of Iraq, we used to, there was a bunch of us junior ministers that used to meet because the cabinet always met. And we felt the junior ministers needed a, a, another way because otherwise you were totally focused on your departmental work and you somehow forgot about politics almost. So we used to meet on a Monday night and we talked a lot. John Denham was one of the people in that group who resigned over Iraq with uh, Robin Cook. And we talked a lot about it. And, you know, he was obviously struggling with his, uh, struggling about what he should do. And I think at the end, I felt, and that probably partly came from personal loyalty, was on the weapons of mass destruction that we had chosen our leader and we had to put our trust in him to assess and understand what was going on and therefore follow him. And I I sort of sometimes think that if that bunch of us junior ministers who were like-minded had actually said, hang on a minute, you know, wait for a second UN resolution, wait for better evidence about weapons for mass destruction, we might have stopped it. But I made a mistake and I sort of felt it was right to entrust his judgment. And I think you might have answered my next question because what I was going to mention was we've had several previous guests on this podcast and the ones that come to mind are Kate Hoey, Tracy Crouch. It tends to be that I think politicians who are quite independently minded can often struggle with what comes of having a government role uh, in the sense that you have to be very on message. People don't like you going and freelancing. So did you find it constraining having ministerial roles? Yes. I mean, I, I, I sort of look back on it and think that everything I did, I like to think I left a legacy. I think there are still things today that are in place that I did. And I feel proud of that. And obviously, as a minister, you you want to, you come into politics to change the world. You have some levers of some power so you can do some changes to the world. And I did, you know, if you actually were to look back through the cuttings, I didn't behave myself entirely. I mean, I remember one when I was at DCMS. This was under Gordon Brown. And I was culture minister. And I'd been to the proms. And I hadn't seen a black face at the proms. And uh, I spoke at a, a conference about diversity in the arts and said something about I hadn't seen a black face at the proms. And I'm afraid the media went ballistic about this, you know, because the proms is a very well-loved institution and maybe it wasn't the best example to, to alight on, but it was such a stark example of our failure, really, in the arts to speak to and involve a diverse community. And that went ballistic, and I got phone calls within two minutes of it <laughs> telling me what I said. I've got to say something different. I've got to put the record straight. So that happened to me a few times, and a few, well, more than a few times during that my ministerial career, 
And I, I do genuinely think that, because at the time, you know, the pressure is try and get into cabinet, try and get into cabinet. And because I think of my tendency to be a bit independent-minded, I think that was a constraint on that. And I am grateful for that, because the focus of the media is less on the junior minister, so you can get on with actually achieving the changes that you want to achieve, you know, just less in the public eye. And, you know, I actually managed to remain a minister right the way through until the end. And probably had I gone up to the cabinet, no doubt I'd have got sacked along the way. And that brings us to your role as the chair of the Public Accounts Select Committee, which I think is what you are most well known for. You quickly grew a fierce reputation for taking down various civil servants or potential tax dodgers. But the role did draw criticism. There were some, such as the then head of the civil service, Scott O'Donnell, who accused you of making it into a theatrical event. I was wondering, do you think there was a theatrical element to it? And did you enjoy that? Can I rebut that? Because I do feel, I feel that quite strongly that I came to that role having fought the BMP embarking and having Nick Griffin challenged me in the 2010 election and the BNP gained 12 seats on the council in 2006. So I'd had a four-year real struggle against the fascists embarking. It really did change the way I did my politics. So rather than top-down coming from Westminster, this is what we're talking about at Westminster, come talk that, I learned how to listen. Everything I now do is about does it help me connect to my voters and It just changed the way I do it. So when I took on the role of the chair of the Public Accounts Committee, fresh from that whole experience of smashing the BMP, I really wanted to sort of think about what would the good burghers of Barking and Dagenham feel about the issues in front of us. That was the first thing. And that was always there. So, you know, when people talk technical language at you, professional language that you and that, you know, the burghers of Barking wouldn't understand... I always reacted against that. And the second thing is we use the media. We ruthlessly use the media. But we use the media to a purpose, to raise debate about issues that really mattered. We didn't use it for an end in itself. It was always used for a purpose. And we had very few tools. I mean, all we could do was invite people to come and give evidence to us. They could have turned us down. And the only thing you can do if somebody turns you down is you send them a stiff letter saying, we expect you to appear. And then if they don't, apparently you could go to the floor of the House and get the House to agree that this person should be interned for a period of reflection in a little prison that sits under the clock tower in Big Ben. We never had to do that. But, I mean, that was literally the only power we had. So actually the power of... You know, I wanted to raise the issue of tax, if you take that for which we're quite renowned, take it back to the year 2000, nobody would have talked about tax really around then because it was always seen as too difficult. The language was very technical, so it was seen as as the domain really for the tax professionals. But tax belongs to all of us, it belongs to you and me, and how it's collected and how it's spent is a matter of concern to all of us. I'm quite proud of that in that I think we demystified the issue. And so we did use the media. And let me just say this to you. Actually, in all our inquiries, 
I'm probably the only person who's got a good word to say about the media because investigative journalists at their best were hugely helpful to us when we were trying to discover issues. I mean, just actually think about the Panama and Paradise Papers. That's all exposed by the journalists. But I can give you endless other examples where investigative journalists from the extreme left to the extreme right in the press really, really helped us, as, of course, did whistleblowers. So... It was, the, it was to a purpose. I'd have never got as far as I did on the tax issue if we hadn't hit the six o'clock news on that very first, first session when we did put a witness on oath. And that was a very funny story, if you'll allow me to tell it, that we'd heard, actually, we'd had a session with the HMRC. It was a very boring session. How, how good were they? How efficient and effective were they? I'd read Private Eye. And there was a bit in private eye about a sweetheart deal with Goldman Sachs. We interviewed the head of tax, as did the Treasury Select Committee. And he said he couldn't tell us anything about it, confidentiality of taxpayers' interest. And it was a very frustrating session. And he also said he had nothing to do with Goldman Sachs' deal. After the session, I was given a brown envelope of a whistleblower. And in that there was one piece of paper which were the minutes of the meeting held at HMRC by the head of law who had who said that the head of tax had shaken hands on the deal. So he had uh, told a porky to the committee, which is not acceptable. And then the head of law called the deal unconscionable. So we called back the head of tax and the head of law. And they both refused to say anything. So actually Richard Bacon, who was my in effect vice chair and who'd been on the committee a long time, whispered to me at the session put him on oath because he wasn't telling us anything and I said I whispered back saying I can't do that I'd only been in the job six months I hadn't a clue and he said no you can so I turned to the clerk and said can I put him on oath and he says yes so I said well go and find a bible and it took him 20 minutes to find a bible he didn't tell us much more but it hit the six o'clock news and on the back of that a journalist from Reuters came and told me the story about Starbucks. So you can see how actually it helped us raise the issue rather than becoming a, 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 you know, I wasn't sort of, I really, really, at my age, didn't care about being on the news. I didn't care about that. And because you were publicly criticised, whether it was by head of the civil service, or there was a Tory MP, did you come under pressure from any figures, you know, to, to asking you to tone it down? I mean... All these select committees reflect Parliament. So the Public Committee, Public Accounts Committee, had more Conservatives on it than it did any other political party. And we managed in our five years to produce something, I think it's 246 unanimous reports, right? There was only one report that we couldn't agree on, and that was on the sale of Royal Mail. And we considered that just before the 2015 election, so it was probably a bridge too far. And I think if you talk to, uh, I mean, Stuart Jackson was somebody on my committee, Chris Heaton-Harris was on my committee, so they're people with whom I might not have much in common around a whole road of issues, but we were all focused on this value for money, wherever, you, if you're, whether you're on the right or the left, you have this shared interest in eking best value, and I think they loved it. I think they loved their time. So I don't think my criti- I did get criticised by the head of the civil service, Gutted on, who tried to shut me down, and failed. And actually, the reason he failed this was very interesting. When I got this, uh, this woman came to see me, who said she'd been employed by him to do some 
interviews with people and they thought I was... I said, well, let me see the report you've written for him. She gave it to me and there was a, in it literally a sentence which said, if, if she doesn't change, we could always shut the committee down. So I showed that to my predecessor, to all the Conservatives on my... Everybody on my committee. I shared it with everybody. And the fury at the thought that a civil servant could close us down actually helped embed their support for the way we were operating. Now, moving to the final section of the podcast, I just want to talk first, I suppose, again, it was mentioned in the introduction, but there is a continuing row about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. It is something that you've been in the news for because you confronted Jeremy Corbyn on the issue. Later, I think you instructed lawyers at one point. And I just wondered, it must be difficult in some ways going up against the leader of your own party on an issue, but perhaps not for you. But I was just wondering, throughout this, you seem to have had the backing of many of your colleagues. But has it been difficult having such a public row with Jeremy Corbyn on anti-Semitism? Um... It's been horrible. I joined the Labour Party, taking full circle. I joined the Labour Party because I'm an immigrant. And my Jewish identity was never part of my politics in the sense that, you know, I, I wasn't a practising Jew in the traditional sense of the word, but very conscious of where I came from, who I was in, in, in background. And it was only when I started getting anti-Semitic social media stuff that I suddenly thought, crumbs, this has become an issue. And, you know, I joined the party to fight racism. That's, you know, I've been, I always say, what's the value that brings me into the Labour Party? It's the promotion of equality and the fighting racism. I'd fought the BMP and I could have given up. I was over 60 by the time they emerged in marking. So I could have given up the fight. And then my husband died in the middle of it. So it was quite a sort of difficult personal time. But it's so important to me to fight racism that that's what I do. And so when I found it in my own party, I was shocked. I mean, let me just tell you one thing. I'm writing another book at the moment, a second book, and this is about immigration and integration. And I pulled out all the BMP literature the other day that they used in 2008, 2009, 2010. And the researcher who's in my office now, who deals with all the ghastly stuff I get on social media, I don't really look at too much of it, They'd produced an eight-page paper, right, which was absolutely horrible. It was misogynistic, racist, just vile, full of lies, horrible. On the back, it says what people think of Margaret Hodge, and it's full of sort of horrible, abusive stuff. And he said, oh, my God, that page has been copied and posted onto social media by the hard left as a way of attacking me. And doesn't that tell you an interesting story about how the hard left and the hard right do come together on this terrible issue. So I, I sort of feel this, that's what I'm about, is fighting racism. And to be honest, on a personal level, I've known Jeremy since 1983, so I don't feel a huge amount of awe about, about him. And we mentioned your comment from, from the rally recently about you know, wait until he ceases to be the leader of the Labour Party. I've just been at Labour Conference to... Lucky you. (laughs) Cut early, thanks to uh, the Supreme Court. But we had a situation where there's been lots of talk about succession, the fact that the NEC have changed the rules about giving vetoes of an interim leader. And lots of people are beginning to see that the age of Corbyn might come to an end sooner rather than later. I was wondering, do you you think that we're getting to... or can you see a post-Corbyn era in the new, new future? Well, I'm very detached from 
the mainstream of the Labour Party nowadays. And I do my own things. Tax justice is still an issue I work on. I'm working on the anti-Semitism. And then beyond that, I'm writing a book. I chair a university. I chair a theatre. So I've got a very, very full life. But I don't have to spend too much time in the Parliamentary Labour Party, except when we're talking about anti-Semitism. So I think it is coming to an end. I think the shine has come off his leadership. I think it's a scary time in politics. That's what I, you know, it is sort of the populism and the cult of the individual is a bit scary. And it's not just in the Labour Party, it's Trump, it's Boris Johnson, it's globally, you know, characters that emerged, the Ukraine, the Ukrainian president. You know, you can look everywhere. It's the cult of the personality. And you saw it a little bit this week when they went back to the, oh, Jeremy Corbyn chant. That was a little bit of the cult of the personality and a failure to address the issues. That is scary. I don't know whether where that will land in the end. I mean, I don't know if you do, but and I do think. Look historically, I look at sort of are there connections between what's happening now and what was happening in the early early thirties that allowed a Hitler figure to emerge in terms of populism and. In Italy, you know, you can Mussolini in Italy. You can see it. Sort of, are there are there similarities there, or should we just think that this is a blip in our history and we'll come back? So I'm. It's a bit scary, but I think the shine is coming off his cult image. I think he shows that he looks a bit tired, and I'm not sure he's enjoying it very much. And maybe he wants to spend a bit more time on his allotment. And I think it matters a lot who takes over from him as to whether or not the Labour Party has got a future as a left-of-centre party in British politics. But I'd say the same about the Conservative Party. And, you know, depending on what happens in both mainstream parties, then it's very interesting as to whether we move to a different system with a multitude of parties. You know, let's see what happens at the forthcoming election and what that means for our voting system and our democracy it's you know interesting for you guys. It's a bit scary for me. And just the last thing is, we, as you mentioned, we could be heading to a general election very soon, perhaps not so soon, depending on what happens in the next few days. Say that Jeremy Corbyn defies the odds yet again and he does become prime minister. Would you be comfortable with Jeremy Corbyn being prime minister? Well, I think I would be in quite... I mean, it might... If he became prime minister, that would not stop me from pursuing what I think is right. So I think, and there are quite a lot of like-minded souls. So hopefully, you know, if were that to come, we would support everything we could, but we would not, you know, in a tribal way, support things that we thought were wrong. Thank you, Margaret. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. 